1: New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to the New Books in Economics series. This is a channel of the New Books Network, and I am your host, Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brookes University. We are here today with the author of a great new book, and the title is Transition Economies, Transformation, Development and Society in Eastern Europe and the Former Soviet Union. The author is Alexander uh, Givorkin. And uh, is now reaching us from New York, where he's an Associate Professor in Economics, and in particular is Harry George Chair in Economics at the Department of Economics and Finance of the Peter Tobin College of Business at St. John's University in the United States. Welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me.
1: You're welcome. Can you tell us something about your current affiliation, your previous and your background, your education, and how you arrived to write this book? So what is the background of the book?
0: Absolutely. The path was very is very long. I'll try to keep it very short. <laughs> I'm, um, as, as you mentioned, a associate professor now in economics, but before that, um, I also had a bit of a corporate career. I was uh, 11 years in uh, consulting and then two years in uh, public economic policy here in New York. Um, But in the meantime, I would still be teaching and uh, doing some research. Now, as I worked on figuring out some 10, 11, 15 years ago on what might be an interesting topic to focus on in terms of my... Uh, research and uh, doctoral uh, dissertation at the New School in New York City. Um, one topic came uh, kept coming up. I was interested in macroeconomic development in general, um, but it, I needed some regional uh, focus. And what I found was that um, there wasn't really much in terms of a general overview on the economies that the book is about, sort of the post-socialist economies of Europe and former Soviet Union. And so my first attempt at doing anything serious in that field was back in 2008, 2009, um, when I worked, um, uh, when I started working uh, in that area. And uh, gradually sort of things just evolve and uh, with uh, teaching and teaching economic development, uh, the topic started to reappear more and more frequently in my discussions in my presentations and some uh, research and uh, eventually, I came to a realization that I might have enough material to uh, actually sit down and uh, work on a book um, so there's that uh, in other words, I have a mix of uh, kind of hopefully practical <laughs> corporate career uh supplemented with academic work and now um, Uh, fully focused on uh, research and scholarship Uh, about the book um, well again the the origin was back then and when i started teaching and developing uh, more or less uh, transition economies focused curricula um, i started kind of going through lots of literature and what i found was that uh, much of the literature was focusing on specific issues Um, it's it's you know there's not there's no lack of publications um on specific topics and especially in the 90s and in the early 2000s there was so much attention to the economic reforms the different ways to measure success or failures and things like that specific country studies the world bank has a dedicated unit on europe and central asia um, so no one could really try to rival and in a way i'm not trying to do that but what I noticed is that the, most of the studies are specialized case study. And this is where I thought I could try and attempt to offer somewhat a different perspective in the, uh, with this book. And in a way, I try to combine this uh, story of transition, or what we refer to as transition, uh, in this economic history perspective in a more systematic way inc- involving all of the countries affected bit of a long longish answer but uh being uh, sort of closely related to the to the topic um, kind of, um that's uh that's how i feel right at the moment about the book <laughs>
1: Very good. So you mentioned the keyword, word, which is transition. And if I, I'm not wrong, the, the field of transition economics has been always, and in particular since the fall of the Berlin Wall, associated with, let's say, a transition towards one possible direction, which was market economies within a context of liberal democracies. Um, for now, many years, since 1991, this has been the case. But now I wonder whether the Chinese model is somehow changing the field of transition economics since perhaps we have an additional model which is there and which is rather successful and might suggest uh, other countries to, let's say, move towards that model.
0: Right. So that's, uh, I think, a very uh, apt uh, comparison. Um, So let's start with transition, probably, because as you properly pointed out um, in the 90s it was all about a a vision of a free market economy uh, with uh, private businesses uh, flourishing and limited government involvement and so on there was a model of success that at least in the minds of the uh, architects of the reforms uh, that existed. Um, and uh, in a way, you know, I make that uh, brief comment in the book, in a way, this would become just another type of belief, just like the Marx economics <laughs> were guiding the uh, policymakers in the Soviet Union, the, the market economy was guiding uh, in very much uh, with the same much uh, sort of devotion um, uh, economists of the early 90s. But that's the big question. Transition to what? And I raise this uh, in, in the book, actually, uh, in in the first two chapters of the book, which are a bit more methodological. I talk about, well, transition to begin with how do we define it then transition from what and then transition to where uh, or what is the final destination and what i discovered in in the research working on this is that um, again there was a a wide range of publications Um, people approaching this from a pure neoclassical economics point of view or trying to build it into more historical perspective and trying to build some kind of Uh, framework around that. Um, But there was not much agreement other than, well, the economies have to be more open and liberalized. But what that really meant to the societies was not exactly uh, captured. So I talk about that uh, a little bit. And then um, in comparing to China, that's where I bring in the definitions and the different aspects of this transition. Because what I would actually propose and that's captured in the title of the book um, is that it's not the transition that happened but transformation Um, so if comparing to China uh, there are several questions that I think we'll probably be able to touch on that in more uh, again in in a few moments but specifically um, uh, it's the timing of course it's the type of the reforms it's the type of uh, social structure Um, that existed back or characterized the soviet model um, and eastern european model um, and what is present in china it's the methods that are being used in terms of um, uh, sort of the economic stimulus and so on and specifically the fact that and it's 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 been brought up in literature and there's some new research that is more empirically based going back into history and which gives us more uh, uh, foundation, sort of more uh, footing to say that um, it was the ability in the case of China to push the technology and technological innovation into this larger consumer market, which was lacking in the specific case of the Soviet Union transformation. Um, So, if we, the difficulty for me is not being a political scientist. I try to avoid (laughs) making these type of bold statements, but from a macroeconomic perspective, um, this lacking uh, uh, initiative, so to speak, uh, and uh, just seeing things and uh, taking things as they were and thinking things were fine, and rather than reinvesting into more innovative technology that would bring consumer markets um, to the forefront, um, I think that was the one of the problems in the, in the 70s and the 80s in the Soviet Union, which then led to the questions of, well, we have to reform, but how to reform was not really obvious. Again, there was no model of uh, moving from an, a centralized economy to uh, what was suggested to be a free market economy, because the free market itself was not really clear what that meant. Um, so we have, uh, in in the case of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the 90s, we have the uh, sort of the confluence that's mix up of political and economic, social and cultural aspects um uh, which i believe a bit more are a bit more controlled than if you think about china and um this ability uh to eventually become the global manufacturer sort of in the case of china
1: thank yeah. you very much for answering my question which yeah. uh, was not strictly connected to the book and uh, now let's go back to the book um, so yes you start with transition versus transformation then you move uh, towards uh, a macro a macroeconomic analysis of this transformation but then you introduce the notion of human transition so mm-hmm. what have you have you been measuring and looking at uh, in terms of market and uh, human transformation mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so this is the 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 aspect that I thought was critical, and um, and that's the one that we often omit in very technical economic analysis that we do. Um, The human transition is simply put: how is an average person affected by the changing macroeconomic and political environment? There's a tendency to. Of course generalize and because we work in with statistics and statistics conceal the uh, the sort of the direct effects on individuals or even societies and so my challenge was the challenge to me was to figure out how to build it into uh, the overall story the narrative and at the same time make it in such way that um, um, it would still be consistent with this whole discussion of economic change and i think what I tried to do was that discuss uh, the, uh, the situation built towards sort of the understanding of situation of living standards before the 1990s and then how those started to change after. And there are a couple of ways this could be shown. One was the discussion on the problems of income and wealth inequality. And it's not that we should idealize any previous models or any model whatsoever. But there was a clear objective um, uh, distinction that in the the Soviet compact, so to speak, in this uh, contra- social contract of the time, um, an average individual had a bit more stability uh, with a uh, th- somewhat government-guaranteed education, minimum education, minimum healthcare, and in, and in fact, employment. Now, this should not be taken as a perfect world. <laughs> Obviously, we have to be very objective. There were a lot of, um, um, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say nuances, but there were quite a lot of uh, problems with this. But at the same time, on average, it provided by 1970s and 1980s, not, not to speak about the years before but by night early 1980s it, that type of a system provided a more of a stability predictability and you have a society that is used to dust that type of uh, uh environment and all of a sudden within few hours right overnight practically all of that collapses um now there's a good side to that and there's obviously the bad side to that the bad side is this moment of transition when we when the societies were taken from one comfort zone and they were transitioning into somewhere else which was still unknown and uh the the state guarantees obviously disappeared um uh, the the job markets the labor markets would now resemble the typical capitalist economy uh, labor market with all of its uh, imperfections, um, but also opportunities, of course, um, and I think that's important. At the same time, this problem of inequality <coughs> became even more uh, uh, pronounced. Um, uh, the, the Soviet Union, of, of course, was as any pretty much any other society, a hierarchical society. But at the same time, the share of income that would go to ten percent, right? Um, income earners was relatively less than what would happen after. And so what we see in the 90s and then through up to now is that increasing this, uh, the increase and and the widening of this gap between uh, the few uh, top earners and the larger share that would be middle or lower middle income groups. So there's that. But another aspect of a human transition was the massive change and massive migration of peoples uh, from pretty much every country. And for that, to appreciate this, one needs to understand the system that was built over the 70 years in the case of Soviet Union, over about 40 years in the case of Eastern Europe. And in in the case of Soviet Union, I think it would be more, uh, again, it's much more significant than in the case of Eastern Europe. What What was happening, Going back all the way in the history, there was continuous change and relocation of peoples, whether voluntarily or forced, one way or another. Uh, The ethnicities, the religious mix of uh, the uh, regions uh, were changing. And with the breakdown of the centralized support system um, and the push for national uh, independence, right, sovereignty, and emphasis on uh, one sort of titular nation, or one the key nation, uh, as defining the ethnic conflicts would become more pronounced. Um, in some cases, it led to uh, obviously wars and still ongoing disputes, um, and um, the sort of that would be that would result in the uh, migration due to uh, war and conflict. But then, with the breakdown of economic ties. Um, and uh, massive joblessness, massive uh, economic uh, collapse. The, the other type of migration, the labor migration, would be mostly the economic migration. So that started to change the mix-up of the societies uh, in the through the '90s, putting adding more pressure on the relatively well-to-do societies, but still nobody was well-to-do, but real in relative terms better, in economic terms better, um, and leads to all sorts of other social pressures within the host and the home countries so some i I just pointed out to two uh, a couple of things right The the state guarantees this the uh, social welfare system the um, income inequality and migration and i think those three are uh, really important factors to consider because that is part of this human transition that is still ongoing people are still trying to get used to Um, or rather live in the new environment Um, and uh, you know you have everyday situations uh, that uh, result in the larger macro picture
1: Uh, something like that and this um, uh, human aspect that you have Mm -hmm. mentioned uh, is part of the diversity of the model because of course we can say eastern europe and soviet model but uh, you have already mentioned that there were so many different nations and there was a structural diversity and institutional diversity so the model was applied to countries that were very very different and the 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 success of their transition that started earlier or later uh, has been also uh, also different so can you tell us in in your book we find figures and charts about so many different nations can you tell us how much was this diversity uh, relevant, important uh, during the Soviet time? And what happened to this diversity af- when the transition started? And which models, which counties became more successful after the transition?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think this emphasis on diversity is really critical in understanding what happened. Well, rather, what was there before, what happened and what's happening right now. Um now diff- <clears throat> if we look at all these countries eastern Europe former Soviet Union 29 countries to my count um they came to this same system the socialist system in different ways those in the Soviet Union um were pretty much absorbed by after the 1917 revolution and the establishment of the Soviet Union later um uh, out of the remnants of what had been the Russian Empire. Those in Eastern Europe and uh, the Baltics would become uh, the byproduct of the, the world sort of division in the, after World War II. Um, and in that, that, there's already a big difference, right? The political aspect of it. There's also, there was also a difference in how those countries were industrialized and changed. Now, the Soviets achieved m- massive progress in education, For example, um, they were able to achieve uh, those um, sort of maybe that could be counted as a success because basically a hundred percent literacy rate in the early 30s, I'm sorry, late 30s or so, um, close to that something, 90 something percent, and then eventually a hundred percent. At the same time, there was a push for industrialization. Right with the collectivization reforms and, and industrialization, which I discuss in the book as well. And there's a tempti- there's a kind of temptation to see this as, well, this is one great uh, economic uh, development policy, but there's then another side to this that's the human side to that. And we are reminded that through the 1930s, thousands and millions of people had per- uh, perished due to you know There was the environment of great terror and things like that. So that left a mark. And by the time the Eastern European economies come into the fold, the same attempt to industrialize is pushed, but it's done in a slightly different way, in a bit more, should we say, mild way, with less so of, um, in relative terms, um, with less insistence on, Uh, nationalization for example in Eastern Europe uh, which is a case different very different from what happened in the Soviet Union but in parts of Eastern Europe including Poland much of agricultural sector would remain still in private hands would still be private whereas as we know in the Soviet Union the collectivization reforms resulted in effectively all state-owned collective farms Um, at the same time the Significant investment in again in the post-war uh, to uh, reconstruction uh, aimed at um, strengthening Central European Eastern European economies um, created some sort of a sense of competition between those among those economies by 1970s and 1980s, um, and in the in a sense in a some way there's uh, one could argue that it it's that backbone created back then that helped them then later to integrate with european union uh, supply chain much more successfully than for example in the case of soviet union economies the soviet union re- would remain uh, until the last moment a very much centralized economy right sort of the the decisions are made in the center and there's a big state plan and that is how um uh, pretty much everything is distributed and uh, pre- was produced uh with one part let's say uh in any example even a simple desk one part being produced in country a and another part in country b and the, and the whole thing gets assembled in con- country c and then it's painted in, in somewhere else um very simple example but it's, it's that was pretty much the planned system that kept everyone involved and provided jobs guarantees. It was not obviously perfect because it, it clearly as we his, history shows it was not sustainable uh, whereas in Eastern Europe, things were slightly more different because it, there was more emphasis um, um in with with Eastern European economies being able to retain their individuality, especially in national terms. Um, whereas that was not the case in former Soviet Union, where it was all one country, Um, there was much more uh, resilience that they would inherit and much more flexibility, again, all in relative terms, of course. The the politics and ideology would, would still dominate, but in economic terms, those relative differences were important. So maybe a bit of a long preface, but to a short answer that those initial conditions with which these countries would enter the early 90s and the reforms process i would think were uh, fundamental in then defining uh, who succeeded in macroeconomic uh, or achieving certain macroeconomic targets and who did not Um, and they would also then later in the book i talk about how they also inform um, the current situation and how we would understand or try to attempt to understand um, the current institutional change and the current macroeconomic uh, change uh, in that part of the world. So to say that one is successful or the other is not is a bit of a challenge because success by itself would become a subjective measure. And in macroeconomic terms, I think that would be an explanation that there were the initial differences um, and uh, in, the, in the sense of industri- how the industrialization went in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, the results of it and the ability of Eastern European economies um, uh, to then integrate on that industrial – using – leveraging that industrial backbone with the rest of the world.
1: Uh, I would like to ask you something uh, that you don't cover explicitly in the book, which is uh, the industrial-rural divide in the Soviet Union, because this is a problem also in China. It used to be a problem under Mao, and uh, for other reasons, it is still a problem. So how those uh, several, 29 nations you mentioned uh, dealt with this divide in the same way, in different ways, in more or less successful ways?
0: Mm-hmm. Um well the socialist model maintained this uh division right you're right there was a divide between the rural um the agricultural sector and the industrial sector with strong emphasis on the industrial sector the difficulty of course with then taking this point further was that the industrial sector was just developed for its own sake It was the production of means of production for the sake of production of more means of production rather than the consumer items so the within the soviet model which again would be separate from eastern european model um the agricultural sector was the the dependent sector right it was the sector that would provide um it would be the sort of it's the initial sector that would provide then for successful functioning of the industrial sector and the industrial sector would be urban uh primarily urbanized uh sector and the in the back in the days in the 20s of course there was the 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 the, the the problem with the uh, the differences in prices between the industrial manufactured products and agricultural products, that the purchasing prices for agricultural sector were significantly lower than the manufacturing sector and that resulted in the, at the time, peasants um, not being able uh, to afford any of the consumer items or manufacturing items that were needed in agriculture. So that was resolved in an administrative way later on sort of in the now in the 70s and the 80s um it would the agricultural sector would still remain lar- largely uh, uh functioning as a based on subsidies basically from the state um it was there was problems there were problems with the efficiency um Because again, the main focus for the planners was on the industrial capacity and building up the industrial backbone. In a way, one could say that they followed the uh, sort of the development models that would, again, that we have and we tried uh, that were tried elsewhere in the world. uh, Again, focusing on import substituting uh, industrialization type of approach. However, it was not because of the agricultural productivity that, for example, we had more, uh, there was there was a need for uh, workers on the factors, um, but it was simply because the sector existed on the subsidies. So the differences in living standards were also quite visible. Those in the rural areas obviously had limited access, much more limited access to various services, uh, including what I mentioned, the education, healthcare, and so on um the uh, salaries were relatively lower than in the urban areas or industrial areas and that division would remain another problem that existed was the uh local uh sort of the system of residency right that uh kept people essentially uh in the place of their their birth or unless they were appointed after Graduating from college to um, uh, uh, to a job, unless they were stationed somewhere, um, that residency pretty much kept the person to assigned to the place. So the mobility, the internal mobility, unless it was somehow sanctioned, was very much uh, constrained. So again, maintaining that divide between the agricultural and and the industrial sectors.
1: Thank you. Uh- can you tell us something about the future, the current uh, situation of uh, Eastern European uh, nations mm-hmm. that, by the way, uh, reacted to the latest financial and economic crisis in, again, less or more successful ways? Uh, but in particular, Russia. So, what do you uh, forecast mm-hmm. for the future? Uh, not complete a... transition of Russia.
0: Of course. Yeah. So. I may give you another long answer but it goes something like this the future is always bright <laughs> <laughs> um you must uh, i'm i'm maybe it's part of a character so but trying to be an optimist but still if, if you just think about uh everything that we do as uh, researchers as policymakers and so on there's one aim to assure that what comes in the future is something better Something more progressive um, and uh, kind of simplifies somehow makes the life better compared to what it is now. So future is always bright. However, that's the, where the difficulty is. To get to this bright future, we have to accept this past history. And the and the past is very complicated. Um, I tried to sketch this just now very quickly, but... It's, Being objective about one's history is probably one of the most difficult things that can be done. Um, And so what that leaves us is with the present. And the present are the policies, the decisions that we make, and uh, sort of the course that we build for the future. So what we're left with in terms of analysis is really looking at that. And um, what we're seeing happening now in all of these countries is that this layering of different development models there's a layer that comes from legacy it is much more st- stronger in um former soviet union countries and russia obviously is the largest economy so it's the, the economy that is v- mostly visible um in the sort of in um uh, for uh, observers and, and just on, on average in the media and so on um and this layering of the the influence of legacy is that of a powerful state that provided uh, the basic needs for the society for human development, um, however good or bad. But there was some type of a guarantee. At the same time, there's another layer, and that's the second layer that comes out of the 1990s and the the whole independence movement of the 1990s, which, if we think a bit more, suggests that actually the freedoms enjoyed today by the the countries that we're discussing, all of them, Eastern Europe former Soviet Union. Those freedoms are very unique to their history. Um, They, Effectively, what we've got in the 90s is 29 independent nation states. Being part of the Soviet system, in fact, due to migrations and due to um, uh, the emphasis on national industrial policies and development, in fact, strengthened those countries self-identification through those decades of being part of the socialist model so the net result is that they come into the 90s well prepared to be on their own and so that leads to the third layer and that's where there's a realization that to continue as an independent economy there is a need for a state that takes um, um or a state and the state economic policy that provides some sense of guarantee some sense of comfort to the society and at the same time there's a need for a more progressive which is viewed as uh, you know private enterprise and 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 obviously there's massive benefit in having private markets and and free market um and we will see how that works out that's the you know the million dollar question um it really uh, is country going to be dependent on each country's uh, decisions and uh, societies yeah.
1: uh, sorry the, this now i I have a comment on something which is absolutely not related to your book but recently um, a, a british politician was um, accused by um, european leaders in particular those uh, um, belonging to former Soviet nations, because he said, we need to leave the European Union, which now is uh, uh, acting like uh, the Soviet Union used to act with these um, satellite nations. Um, And so there is this dream of uh, uh, becoming a more independent nation and abandoning uh, institutions like the european ones that uh, appear according to them too oppressive and too involved in planning or regulation of uh, the economies and consumption markets and so on Uh, any opinions on this on the role (laughs) of institutions like the european (laughs) union
0: i think institutions are very important right and i make a point when i talk about transition uh experience which i call actually a transformational experience is that institutions are not mushrooms they need time they need time care and attention to evolve and i think i'm not familiar with that uh comment um, although i am familiar with the process that is ongoing and it's between the uk and the eu and um the i think it's look uh, there's definitely part of um being part of uh, the team right then that requires that makes that imposes certain sometimes very strong limitations on what can be done or cannot be done within the national policy um and i mean we see this with the european unions and the uh, u- the euro the currency uh the uh limited uh independence and uh, flexibility for each economy in terms of their monetary policy right and the same obviously with in in politics again and not exactly my area but we should if with any references to the soviet union past i one problem what i'm finding is that people either idealize it too much (laughs) as a great thing or uh, of some sort of a you know social haven uh, on earth or um uh, there's the other extreme of being extremely negative towards it um and this is where i'm hoping that i'm that's where i'm trying to inform the public that actually there's well the the objective reality is much more complicated um and so just making comparisons with eu being just like the soviet union i'm not really sure that's helpful uh the eu does not Uh, forcefully uh, uh, collectivized, for example, which was the case of 1920s, right? Um, There are quite significant freedoms within the EU. um, And um, at the same time, um, yeah, maybe there is something in common, for example, with what I'm familiar in terms of policies towards support of education and healthcare, those type of things. Uh, The Soviet Union had the minimum basics and provided for free to each resident uh, education opportunities uh the apprenticeship the model that is in germany sort of the apprenticeship model um or um other uh, services whatever whatever those might be um but (laughs) so there's a bit of a complicated rumbled answer but basically um I think we have to be careful when we start making these type of comparisons, um, but politicians are, are, can get away with many things, I guess.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Alec. Uh, by the way, before I ask you about your next projects, I see mm-hmm. that you have already published another book with Routledge, and this was published in 2011, uh, Innovative yes. Fiscal Policy and Economic Development in Transitional Economies. So what is your next project instead?
0: Um the next project um uh, I'm I'm interested despite of everything we just talked about I'm also interested in the international uh, uh capital markets international uh economy and um how the exchange rates work so I am looking at again maintaining my regional focus but looking at uh, how uh, these countries uh develop in more technical sort of from a more technical macroeconomic perspective and specifically through their integration with the global uh capital markets system i think it's quite interesting because really there are two globalizers in the world there's international banking system if you think about this the banks pretty much operate the same way everywhere in the world and the second globalizer is what in the united states they call soccer in Europe they call football <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, more seriously it's about how this uh, flow of international capital may have any influence on countries' development and access to uh, credit being able to uh, control or not to control uh, domestic currency values and domestic credit flow may have an influence on uh, development Uh, in the broader sense uh, that in the in the past uh, i've also uh, uh, looked at and i'm still curious because this topic seems to be coming up i'm also curious and maybe continuing work on the topic of labor migration uh one model that i suggested some time ago was that especially in the former soviet union case i mentioned this in the remarks earlier there's a presence of established old communities of different ethnicities which still feel strong affiliation with their historical homelands, wherever those might be. And the migrants, labor migrants, coming to the host country from those homelands may have an opportunity to connect with uh, this old diaspora, so to speak. And that could be a more meaningful and less painful way of streamlining migration policy. And I think that's an important factor in Europe right now and Eastern Europe and former Soviet Union which relieves the pressure uh, of the societies that are affected so uh, my interest abroad but really uh, within the th- theme of uh, economic development and uh, connecting it with economic history because I don't think we can be talking seriously about anything without keeping in mind the history that comes with each country case
1: Thank you very much and good luck with your current project. We spoke with Alexander Gevorkian, He is Associate Professor of Economics at St. John's University in the United States. We spoke about his book, just published in 2018 by Routledge. The book is Transition Economies, Transformation, Development and Society in Eastern Europe and the Former Soviet Union. Thank you very
0: much. Thank you very much.